Okay, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Happy Lord's Day. Um, I want to begin uh, this morning by reading from Deuteronomy 32. Today we are going to be talking about uh, chapters 5 and 6 from The Attributes of God by Arthur W. Pink, looking at the supremacy of God and the sovereignty of God, very closely related but Pink addresses them in different ways. Um, So I'll begin by reading from Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 9. This is the Song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. As raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves, they are not his children, because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Okay, let's pray as we begin. Almighty God, you are king over all things, for you created all things. Nothing came to be, nothing was created apart from you, for you created all things. And so all things exist in relationship to you. And Lord, we as your creation, ought to know our relationship to you, our creator. And so, Lord, as we come before you and and open your word together, uh, studying words uh, written by uh, those long before us, help us to enter your courts uh, by our spirits, spiritually seeking after you by faith, not by intellectual understanding. Lord, we pray that your spirit might Make yourself known to us. Uh, For only when you make yourself known can you be known. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I do quickly before we start this week's stuff, I want to revisit quickly um, the question that came up last week. Uh, We were looking last week at the foreknowledge of God. um, And Pink defined and and looked at scripture and, and we defined foreknowledge along with him as the eternal electing love of God for particular persons. So for those whom God foreknows, um, that's talking in, in Scripture when it talks about foreknowledge. It's talking about the love that God has that distinguishes and sets people apart. That's the foreknowledge. Um, and so the question arose, Pink started uh, in his book, uh, talks about foreknowledge and causation, foreknowledge and the relationship that it has with election. Uh, the actual election of the saints. Um, and so there was dis- some discussion uh, last week. A question came up 
um, whether God's foreknowledge precedes or follows his election of those persons. Um, and I don't think I answered it very clearly, and I'm not sure we were, we were totally clear on that point, because uh, partially because pink gets a little bit confusing. So I want to clear that up um, and make sure we answer it clearly. Um, starting with Scripture, Romans 8.29, and we looked at that last week, says that for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that he Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then in 1 Peter 1.2, Peter addresses those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Um, And so we see that God's election is an action that's part of God's eternal decree. And we see that election is according to or flowing from God's foreknowledge of those whom he elects. So his eternal distinguishing love flows out, um, and that is, and in that, God elects people. So if we want to think about it in a sequential order, Scripture indicates it would be foreknowledge and then election. But again, we're talking about things that are eternal, so we're just using human, you know, a, a human attempt to put a logical order so that we can comprehend it. Uh, but these are both election and foreknowledge. That electing love um, are, are eternal. In God, I also want to read uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 17.2. It's talking about the perseverance of the saints in this chapter. And it says this, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. So that's that love that we're talking about and that scripture uh, describes as foreknowledge. But we got... Pink spends several pages in that chapter on foreknowledge trying to distinguish how Scripture uses foreknowledge from the way that we ordinarily think about foreknowledge being just knowing something beforehand, a prior knowledge cognitively. And so he kind of uses the word foreknowledge in both ways, and I think that, for me, was a little confusing the way he was going about it. So I wanted to just kind of revisit that because it was a question that uh, I kind of stumbled in a little bit and didn't. don't think I answered quite uh, clearly. So, foreknowledge, the electing love, and then the election flowing from that, if that makes sense. Good so. clarification. Excellent. Good. So now we will move into chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the supremacy of God. Um, this is a chapter where Pink really has some beautiful language. So I'm going to read a couple of... Uh, slightly longer quotes. Um, the way that he puts things is, is um, it, well, he just writes it very beautifully. Um, so I'm going to start, for me this is pages 35 and 36 in my edition. So I'm going to read this to kind of introduce the topic. This is pink. The most dishonoring and degrading conceptions of the rule and reign of the Almighty are now held almost everywhere. To countless thousands, even among those professing to be Christians, the God of the Scriptures is quite unknown. Of old, God complained to an apostate Israel, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether as thyself. That's Psalm 50, 21. Such must now be his indictment against an apostate Christendom. 
Men imagine that the Most High is moved by sentiment rather than actuated by principle. They suppose that his omnipotency is such an idle fiction that Satan is thwarting his designs on every side. They think that if he has formed any plan or purpose at all, then it must be like theirs, constantly subject to change. They openly declare that whatever power he possesses must be restricted, lest he invade the citadel of man's free will and reduce him to a machine. They lower the all-efficacious atonement, which has actually redeemed everyone for whom it was made, to a mere remedy which sin-sick souls may use if they feel disposed to. And they enervate the invincible work of the Holy Spirit to an offer of the gospel, which sinners may accept or reject as they please. Now, I do want to distinguish there, especially in light of the fact that Pastor Sharp has been preaching on the, the free offer of the gospel. That is the case. It is a free offer of the gospel. What Pink's getting at here is the idea that that's all it is and that uh, it, is, it, is, it has no power in itself. Uh, and we see in Scripture all over the place just the offer of the gospel itself is powerful and it is efficacious. It, it accomplishes something because it is from God. It is a power of God. And so if, reduce it, if we reduce it just to an offer, we are uh, transgressing or we are violating the supremacy of God in that. Uh, we make ourselves Lord by putting ourselves in control of whether we accept or not. Um, so let's, as we begin there, I think that's a great um, statement reflecting on how we think about uh, the God of Scripture who is declared to be most high and supreme over all things. How do we contemplate him in our hearts? How do we relate to him in our prayers, in our thoughts, uh, in, our, in our worship? So when, when we use the word supremacy here, we're talking about the relationship between the most high God and all of his creation. So in all of his names, all of his attributes, his works, God is above us. He's above us in power, in authority, in glory, in majesty. He is supreme. He is over all. He is the highest. So when we proclaim God's supremacy, we're declaring that his power, his will, his authority, all that belongs to God is infinitely above that of every other. So it's the relationship that he stands to all of his creation. And I'm going to continue that quote from from Pink. And again, consider that we're talking about the ultimate and highest supreme God of the scriptures. Pink says, The God, he puts that in quotes, of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is the figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom forms gods out of wood and stone, while the millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are but atheists. 
For there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme God and no God at all. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. I think that's so well put um, and so convicting. Um, Again, when we bring God down to our level, when we make him like ourselves, subject to change, that his will, his purposes, his designs are... Um, can be thwarted. Uh, he is no God at all if, if his designs can be thwarted by those whom he made. He has no control. So Pink goes through and mentions many scriptures. I want to go and read those. Um, I want that to be kind of the focus. Uh, scripture declares the supremacy of God. And it doesn't always explain it. God doesn't explain himself to his creatures. He just declares who he is. Uh, and it's all over scripture. Um, so I want, to, I want to look those up. Um, and I wonder whether, if anyone is willing to look up a few uh, to help me out as well. Um, could somebody uh, look up, um, let's see. Job 23.13. Glenn, could you look that up? And then... Dan, do you want to look up Job 42.2? And then could someone look up Psalm 2, verse 4? Yeah, Lisa, that'd be great. Okay, someone want to look up Psalm 115, verse 3. Okay, Olivia, thank you. That's right, yeah. Okay, let's... Um, let's begin. Lisa, could you start with Psalm 2, verse 4? Mm-hmm. Uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Okay, so that there is referring to um, earthly rulers. I probably should have had you read a little bit before that. But that's referring to earthly rulers. In comparison to earthly rulers, they have no power at all. And to the extent that human rulers think that they can um, contest the heavenly throne, um, they can't even touch it. Um, and and it's, there it's almost as though scripture is saying it's just a laughable thought to God. He laughs at even the idea. So the highest earthly rulers are nothing compared to him. Um, I'm going to read First uh, Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> this is David David's praise uh, after in the dedication of the temple. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And the word there is you, you reign, that God reigns. It's, it's present, it's active. It's not in the future. It's not at some future, future kingdom that will come. It's now. God is on the throne now. All right, and then in the same vein, I'm quickly going to read Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And this is Jehoshaphat. O Lord God of our fathers, you, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Again, that comparison to earthly rulers. The true authority, the true power is in God's hands. Okay, Glenn, could you read Job twenty-three thirteen? But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. So whatever God's soul desires, he does. There's no qualification, there's no ifs, there's no um, no conditions. Whatever he desires, he does. Dan, could you read Job 42, 2? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Did I write that down? Right? No. Then would you read 42, 1 through 3? They kind of all go together. Yeah, yeah, do that. Sorry. As the deer pants for water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. Man, I'm reading Psalms 42. <laughs> it's a great song. I'll get Job 42 too. Sounds good. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So all that God has decreed, all that he has purposed, he performs. Um, Olivia, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Pretty clear there. He does all that he pleases. Um, could someone look up Ephesians 1, 11? And while you go there, I'm going to read Proverbs 21, 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. All right, Olivia, you're going to read Ephesians 1.11? Yes, sir. Okay. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, not any other. And he does work all things. 
And can someone look up James 4, verses 13 through 15? Yeah, Elizabeth, that'd be great. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we ought to submit all of our plans to God's, not not say we will do this thing, we plan to do this thing, or even condition our actions on on the will of men. You know, if if the ruling authorities of, of the land allow me to do this thing, we will go do it. No, it's if the Lord wills and allows. He may use Agents in his creation. He may use men as means to accomplish or even to restrict action, but it's subject to his will, not to ours, not to men. And the last one I'll read here is Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now this is just a sampling, but this is the word of God. This is who scripture declares God to be. And there it's, it's an overwhelming picture of God's absolute supreme authority and power over all things. There is nothing outside of it. All things are subject to him and him alone. And this is the God that we worship. And so to the extent that we diminish his supremacy in our own hearts, in our actions, by our words, by our worship, um, this is why we, we um, in Presbyterianism, adhere to the regulative principle of worship. What has God commanded in Scripture? Are we supreme over the worship of God? Absolutely not. He says how he must be worshipped. We are to obey that. He is supreme. All terms are his own. Okay, and just as an added um, picture, Pink goes through some examples. Um, not only does Scripture declare God's supremacy, but Scripture displays it. We see examples uh, of God's supremacy all over Scripture. So I'm going to read this paragraph that touches on many of them. God's supremacy over the works of his hands is vividly depicted in Scripture. Inanimate matter, irrational creatures all perform their maker's bidding. At his pleasure, the Red Sea divided and its waters stood up as walls. In Exodus 14. And the earth opened her mouth and guilty rebels went down alive into the pit. That's Numbers chapter 16. When he so ordered, the sun stood still. That's in Joshua 10. And on another occasion, went backwards 10 degrees on the dial of Ahaz. Isaiah 38, 8. To exemplify his supremacy, he made ravens carry food to Elijah. 1 Kings 17. Iron to swim on top of the waters. 2 Kings 6, 5. Lions to be tame when Daniel was cast into their den. Fire to be burnt burn not when the three Hebrews were flung into its flames. Thus, whatsoever the Lord pleased, 
That did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. That's Psalm 135, 6. These are things that our understanding of the world and creation cannot explain. That, that the wisest men, the scientists of the age, cannot explain these things. And scripture declares that it happened. Um, this is the God that we worship. This is the God who declares and displays himself to be supreme over all things. Not only over inanimate matter and creatures, but God declares and displays his supremacy over the will of every man. And Pink has a a wonderful example here that I think is just so... I mean, it's brief, but it's, it's powerful and it's almost shocking, I think. Uh, This is Exodus chapter 34. Verse 24. Okay, I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. And this is God commanding... Feasts and festivals that should be observed when the people uh, get to the promised land. And he says this. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So God commands all the men of the nation to go up before him three times a year. And you can imagine that if the enemies of Israel were to observe that pattern, three times a year, all the men go hang out somewhere else. We could just walk in and take some land. God says, I will prevent their hearts from coveting your land and keep them from doing so. To give them security and assurance as they obey his word to go to worship him He will maintain them. He will preserve them. He will even work in the hearts of other men to keep his people safe and to keep what he has given them safe. What what a comfort to his people. And this is a people who were commanded to go out from Egypt to worship. Uh, And they obeyed. And and as they obeyed, God um, performed many miracles in Egypt to declare that he would protect his people. He would deliver them. And that when he commands to be worshipped, his people ought to do so and can count on him uh, to do all that he has promised. Pink uh, discusses it this way. Three times in the year, all the males of Israel were required to leave their homes and go up to Jerusalem. They lived in the midst of hostile people who hated them for having appropriated their lands. What then was to hinder the Canaanites from seizing their opportunity and during the absence of the men, slaying the women and children and taking possession of their farms? If the hand of the Almighty was not upon the wills even of wicked men, how could he make this promise beforehand that none should so much as desire their lands? Ah, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21, 1. Again, these are things from Scripture that are just declared. They're not explained. They're just declared. 
Pink raises an objection that is common uh, to the idea of God's supremacy. That being, well, some people violate his will. Some people disobey him. Does that not prove that God's supreme will is not effective? That God's will is being thwarted? God commands certain things and and people disobey. Even we disobey uh, every day. We transgress his law. Um, Are we to conclude from that that we are uh, transgressing the will and the purposes of God? Um, So Pink there draws a distinction um, between what is known as a a distinction between the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. Uh, Pink describes it as God's external word as distinguished from what God has purposed in himself. So all men to one degree or another violate God's external word, his commands that are revealed in scripture, but no one can frustrate the designs and purposes that God has determined in himself because he is absolute, he is independent, he is supreme. So there is a great mystery there that that men do act, men have a will, Uh, Men are created with agency, with with a will of their own, um, and even disobey or violate the commands of their supreme God. But scripture declares this to be true, that God is supreme and that men are held accountable and responsible for their actions. But as we'll see with the next chapter that Pink gets into, that responsibility, that agency, that will that humans have, so far from violating God's will, it is actually established by God's will. It it is based upon the supremacy of God and his sovereignty that men even have such agency, uh, such will to act upon. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 58, uh, excuse me, 55, 8 through 9, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So to wrap up that chapter on the supremacy of God, I'm going to read this closing paragraph from Pink. Kind of an application. How ought we as as Christians, as God's, not only his creation, but as his redeemed, um, twice bought of the Lord, how ought we to consider and respond to the supremacy of God? Pink says this, Here then is a sure resting place for the heart. Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance, but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity and is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without his permission. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. It's Proverbs 16.9. What assurance, what strength, what comfort this should give the real Christian. My times are in thy hand. That's Psalm 31, 15. Then let me rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's Psalm 37, 7. So we then move into chapter 6, which is uh, the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is closely connected to his supremacy uh, and Pink says the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. 
And he says that the divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name. So not only does he have this supremacy in himself, uh, as an absolute statement, he is supreme over all things, but he is not absent and distant in his supremacy. He is active. He is uh, actively reigning and ruling over all things, governing and ordering them all the time. And that is the exercise of sovereignty. He is sovereign as a ruler. Now, other theologians, Bavink, for one, uh, is one that I looked at. Um, He uses the term sovereignty as kind of an umbrella category for all of God's attributes that describe uh, his, his power, his authority to exercise absolute rule over creation. So it includes power, will, uh, omnipotence, um, things like that, that kind of pink is, is kind of including all uh, together using the word sovereignty, um, discussing his uh, right to rule and his activity, his action to rule over creation. Now, Pink uses a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which is another one I think is just really good and worth reading. Um, Dealing with our relationship, how we think about God on his throne as the actual and true ruler over all things. Again, this is Pink quoting Spurgeon. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. I think probably, just as an interjection, I think probably uh, any theologian and, and lots of preachers say that with any attribute of God they're, they're considering. When you really meditate on the things of God and on the attributes of God, they're all the most comforting. <laughs> um, I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones in lots of sermons I've listened to. Pretty much any topic, he says it's the most pressing issue of our day, uh, and he's right with all of them. So So Spurgeon says there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, and yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. I'm going to read that line again. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almondry to dispense alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth and we proclaim an enthroned God. And his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is the God upon but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. 
It is God upon his throne whom we trust. I think I'll probably just... That was Charles Spurgeon. Yep. Spurgeon. And I might just let that hang there. I don't think it needs to be explained. I think that is food for lots of thought and meditation. There's a reason that the gospel is so offensive to the world. Okay, Pink spends most of this because... Really, sovereignty, as Pink says, is the the exercise of the supremacy of God. He spends most of the chapter talking about um, that objection again, the idea of of human responsibility. How does that come in? Where does that uh, meet the the sovereignty of God? How should we think about that? Pink says, many have most foolishly said that it is quite impossible to show where divine sovereignty ends and creature accountability begins. Here is where the creature responsibility begins in the sovereign ordination of the creator. As to his sovereignty, there is not and never will be any end to it. He's a little bit being tongue in cheek there saying, listen, we're talking about the end of God's sovereignty being where man's responsibility begins that's how people so often put it you know where does god's sovereignty end and our responsibility begin he's drawing out the point that's the wrong way to think about it god's sovereignty does not end god does not come to the point of of where his creatures act and have wills and and have some accountability and responsibility and wash his hands and step away no he ordains that accountability he ordains that responsibility and he rules over it that's the truth declared in scripture I'm going to read um, the Westminster Confession gets at this idea in its chapter on the decree of God. If God is supreme, if his will and his decree is over all things, where does that leave us who, by our experience, we, have, we act, we have our own wills? How should we think about this? Chapter 3, section 1 of the Westminster Confession says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So it's God in his, his, his decree, his supremacy, his sovereignty. It's God who establishes the accountability, the, the will of man. The agency of man. So this pretty much flies in the face of the fallacy that God helps those who help themselves. Yes. Yes. God. It's it's uh, not a verse, David. I know you're joking. Yeah, God helps those who help themselves. I mean, He does, but He helps them to help themselves if they're going to help themselves. And indeed, they cannot help themselves. Um, there's there is nothing that is outside of His His. Uh, um, his sphere of sovereignty. So really we ought more properly to consider where we will be willing to submit our um, our responsibility, our free will, if you can call it that, where we should submit it to him, where we should end our responsibility um, 
and, and humanly speaking, let God's sovereignty begin. Um, for it is the truth that he is exercising it at all times. Will we acknowledge that? Will we submit to that? Will we respond properly in obedience and worship? Or will we continue to claw at the control we can have in the same kind of rebellion that Adam displayed in the garden, transgressing the commands of God? Now, we won't have time to kind of finish out, but I do want to kind of hit the highlights quickly of of where Pink goes with this idea of, of God's sovereignty actually establishing the responsibility of man. He, uh, Pink compares and contrasts the nature and position of certain of God's creatures, how some are placed on what Pink refers to as conditional footing, by which he means that their continued claim to that place where God uh, put them rests upon the condition of their responsibility to obey God. So Adam is perhaps the best example. He was placed in the garden without sin, yet able to sin. And his life and his relationship to God were made dependent upon or conditioned upon perfect obedience to God's commands. So that's the covenant of works. If you obey me, I will bless you and give you life. If you disobey me, I will curse you and, and visit death upon you. So we would look at that and say, okay, well, Adam was responsible for himself. Adam had free will. Adam had you know, volition to do as he pleased. Well, it was because God created him that way. God placed him in the garden that way. All of his will and his responsibility was according to God's sovereignty and God's decree. Similarly, Pink identifies that the nation of Israel was also under a covenant of works, just as Pastor Sharp preached last week. Pink's very explicit about this. God He says, the Lord God sovereignly placed Israel upon a conditional footing. He says, the 19th, 20th, and 24th chapters of Exodus afford a clear and full proof of this. They were placed under a covenant of works. And this wasn't a new covenant of works. This was the same. There's there's only one covenant of works. But he was declaring to them, you are under a covenant of works. And yet, in the preface to the law, we see that he had also brought them into uh, a, a, a covenant of grace. I have delivered you from bondage. Therefore, obey me. But we see that conditional footing. That national blessing was conditioned on their obedience. Now we know that because God is supreme, he could have arranged things differently. He had the power to do so. He could have uh, not placed men in his creation creatures on conditional footing. So we might ask, was it right for God to do so? And here I will read from Pink briefly. Well, no, I'll summarize. Really, that's putting it backwards. To ask, is it right for God to do so? Do something is putting it backwards. A thing is right because God does it. When God does something, it is right. Um, again, that's something that flies in the face of the creatures uh, of the world that, that is desperate for things to be right according to our understanding. Well, you, you take an action, you say that it's right, justify yourself. Explain it to me in a way that I understand. That doesn't work with the sovereign and supreme God of all things. He, is not, he does not owe us an explanation. And indeed, our, our minds, our reason, especially after the fall, 
cannot even wrestle with the things that would justify him. It is above us. It is beyond us. And only to the extent that the Spirit of God enlivens our our dead hearts and reveals himself to us, only in that can we even begin to understand and accept what God says. But we can't even accept that it's true apart from his movement and action in our hearts, making us alive to hear it. Other than that, we just hear uh, something that we disagree with. For those who are still fallen and, and unregenerate in their sins, they hear these words, all those verses that we read about the supremacy of God, and we rebel. We say, that is not true of me. That's man in sin. Uh, we, we rebel and say, uh, that's not true, and I'll prove it by going out and living uh, the way that I want to. I think we all can see that in our own hearts at times, even in our flesh, as those redeemed, it rises up trying to assert its own or our own uh, supremacy, our sovereignty. But scripture declares that that is not the way to think about it. Okay, we are um, just about out of time, but I'll conclude by um, let's see how to summarize this. Pink contrasts the conditional footing um, and declares something even more outrageous um, and even more outrageous and, and frankly kind of shocking when we step back and think about it. Display of God's sovereignty. That being that some fallen creatures who were in rebellion to God have now been placed on an unconditional footing. That it is in God's sovereign will he has declared that one man, Christ, would come and fulfill every condition of the covenant of works and claim and earn and, and acquire every blessing that was conditioned upon obedience and that he would give it freely and unconditionally to certain persons. That's us. That's the elect. It is an exercise of God's sovereignty by which he formulated the covenant of grace with Christ from before all time and with him uh, all those who are in Christ. All the sheep that have been given to the good shepherd cannot now be taken out of his hand. That is an unconditional place that we have before God. So even though we exercise some responsibility, some, some will, um, our place in the hand and the heart of God is not conditioned upon our obedience. We are in an unconditional place. That's an exercise of God's sovereignty for which we, who have been uh, so elect, so appointed, to that place in Christ. What can we do but marvel? What can we do but worship? These are the things that God declares about his sovereignty. To do as he pleases with his creation. Uh, and we are the happy and... Um, I guess the word that comes to mind is irresponsible. In the sense that we are not responsible for it. Uh, we are the recipients of a great blessing. A gift of God's grace. That is in no way... Uh, earned by us or conditioned by our, our actions. And praise God for that. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. Let me pray and then let's go across for worship. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your sovereignty. And we marvel at its mystery. Truly these things are, are far above us and uh, beyond our comprehension. And yet you have declared them to us in scripture because you want them to be known. You desire to be known. You make yourself known because you are jealous for your own worship. So Lord, help us in our hearts, fallen and sinful creatures though we are, 
Help us to ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. Even now, Lord, as we cross over uh, to the other building to join together in worship as you have invited us to do and commanded us to do, help us to surrender all that we perceive as our responsibility, our power, our sovereignty over all lives, recognizing it as conditioned and based upon your sovereignty. You have given it to us, and to you we submit it, even now in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would bless your worship, bless the preaching of the word, that it might be powerful, that it might accomplish all that you send it forth to do. We ask that your spirit would visit visit us, would work in mighty ways in us and through us, uh, through the preaching, through our worship, through prayer, all of your means of grace. God, bless your people this day, your day, for you are the Lord of the Sabbath, and you have made the Sabbath for us to be a blessing to your people. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.